Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hi, Adam. Another another revival. (laughs) Episode three. Yeah, I've really been enjoying revisiting and, and having some perspective on productions and plays. And that sort of making it relevant to now and how they shine a light on what's what we're going through now it's just been brilliant yeah it's it's so so fascinating isn't it that when you revisit a production you with any production you're looking through the lens of what's happening in the world at the time that you you watch it and this episode Shabin at the time in 2018 I remember it feeling incredibly pertinent because the Windrush scandal had just broken in the news and now of course uh having a conversation with the actors and creative team um against the backdrop of black lives matter it's it's resonating in a slightly different way but equally as powerful and that windrush scandal still goes on and is unfolding and it's even more maddening that it hasn't been resolved and people are still left out in the cold on that one so it was really good to revisit the, the story again Shabin by Mufaro Makabika was co-produced by Nottingham Playhouse and Theatre Royal Stratford East in 2018. The play was set in Pearl and George's Shabin, an illegal drinking establishment in their home in the St Anne's area of Nottingham in the hot summer of 1958. We meet the guests of the Shabin, drinking rum, eating curried goat and dancing calypso. Set against the backdrop of brewing racial tension in the city, we learn about their lives, loves and hopes. Pearl dreams of opening a restaurant, whilst George, an ex-boxer, wonders if he can return to the ring. But when Linford, a young black man who is dating Mary, a white girl, is attacked by a group of youths, the situation rapidly escalates. The play won the Alfred Fagan Award for Best New Work by a Black British Writer and received terrific reviews, all commenting upon its topicality as the Windrush scandal broke. The Guardian wrote, the empire that courted Pearl, George and their Jamaican neighbours is proven to be little more than a dream of their own making. And as the play ends and the promise of violence grows, that dream comes crashing down around them. Hi, I'm Martina Laird and I played Pearl in Shabin. Hi, my name's Carl Collins and I played George in Shabin. Hi, my name is Mufaro and I wrote Shabin. Hello, my name is Matthew Zia and I directed Shabin. Uh, and I'm Grace Smart and I did the set and costume design for Shabin. Well, I just wanted to start by saying how much I was an enormous fan of the production, the play, the acting, proper fangirl. I just thought it was so rich and, you know, I totally fell in love with Martina. I was like, one day I'm going to work with that woman. It was <laughs> just, and the response at Stratford East was like palpable, you know. Um, so I just wanted to ask Matthew, um, can you explain for those who didn't see the show and don't know what a Shabin is and its sort of role in West Indian community, black community, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a Shabin is essentially a, uh, I'll be bold and brave and say an illegal drinking den. That's what it is. Uh, maybe illicit. Let's go with illicit. Let's draw back on the law. Uh, an illicit drinking den. But I think more importantly, it's a safe space. Uh, so I think you have to imagine that this group of, of kind of foreign nationals have traveled here 
They attempt to get into spaces that they believe they are welcome in, like pubs and bars and clubs and restaurants, and they are ejected from those spaces. And so I guess what they are forced to do uh, out of necessity is to create their own spaces. Um, and so that's what a shabin is. I, I believe it's an Irish word in, in origin, uh, and you also get shabins in other places. So there are shabins uh, in, in South Africa, in the Caribbean, and then also here. But they're, they're community centers, you know? I think that's what they are. Uh, they're often in people's front rooms and houses. Uh, and you've got this kind of dual, duality of, of space that it is the family home and the dynamic is happening within there. But now we're closing the curtains uh, and here come our friends, the punters. So if I walked into a Shabin, what would I experience then? Uh, I think it depends on which year you walk into it, uh, if, if I'm honest. So my mum met my dad in what she calls a blues, uh, which I think is a, a, like a late 70s, early 80s kind of shabine. Uh, I think a shabine, you would get music, you would get food, you would get laughter, you would get truth. Um, you, would get, you would get alcohol, most certainly, and you'd probably be paying for it if you hadn't already paid to come in. Um, and, and something we found in making the play, actually, we started using language like, um, in the Shabin, you can laugh with your entire body. In the Shabin, you can be your entire self. You don't have to censor any bit of yourself that you are afraid of presenting to the outside world in this space. Um, so yeah, it's a safe space, I think, to use a, a very modern term. Amazing. I, th I thought the When can I go? <laughs> yeah. I thought the production really captured that sense of space. Like, you know, it, it was um, when you walked into the auditorium through the design and, and the performances and the music and the lighting and everything working together to create it. So uh, Mafaro, where, where did the idea for the play come from and what kind of research did you have to do to take us back to 1958? The idea is always convoluted. Uh, I mean, uh, so I, um, in about 2012, so this is going quite back, I, uh, I wanted to write something about Senans, uh, and um, this was just like, I think post riots and a few things happening. Uh, I wanted to write something about the place, about the people and the society that I knew that maybe was getting demonized in the media. So I applied for some House Council money and I held like nine meetings in and around Sinan's. And I was interviewing people about Sinan's in the past. So uh, my first sort of initial premise was I needed to speak to anyone who had any information or any idea about the nuns from 1966 to 76. Um, and so during these meetings, I, um, I got to meet some extraordinary people. This story kept coming up about 1958, about uh, the race riots, about um, this story that I didn't know and a lot of people didn't know. And, it kept, and uh, what was quite weird is that I kept coming back to the story, although it wasn't my intention to write the story. And I guess with all plays, it just stuck. And I couldn't not think about it. And I, it started sort of just working my, its way through and I started writing Shabin. So yeah, I, I got to Shabin through a, a very long journey, a very interesting journey, meeting people, researching, yeah, I, yeah, I did a lot. Did a lot. Of, did a lot of work around it. I was reflecting the other day about my mum and dad, and they've worked really hard in this country. My dad used to work at British Gypsum, oh, and okay. East Leak. East Leak, yes, and they worked there for twenty years. 
now I've got nothing to show that my dad worked there. I can only tell people that he worked there. And I can remember um, I was talking to somebody about that, you know, and um, I said my dad worked at British East League and he came to this country in 1960. And he was only here for a week and he got the job and he stayed there for 20 years. And the chap says to me, wow, he was really lucky to get a job at, at East League yes. back in the 60s. Yes. You know, because probably he probably was trying to say to me that, as a black person, to get a job at Eastleigh was yeah, really, really good, yeah. you know. And my mom, she did some really not very nice work. I remember my mom working at Ways Leather Factory, mm -hmm. which is off um, Nuttall Road. And that was a really, really nasty place to work in. You know, it, it was dealing with raw leather as it came off the animal. So you can just imagine the stench. Yeah. And my mom worked there. It's amazing. I mean, I'm from Nottingham and I, I didn't know we had one of the first race riots in that year in the UK and, and a lot of the, our audience didn't as well. And you can totally tell that detail even when reading the text and even in the stage directions, they got full of period detail. So I wanted to ask Grace about the design process and, and you know, foraging around that detail in the stage direction. Can you talk to us a bit about the design and the process? Yeah, well, quite early on, because originally the stage directions were... <laughs> I think we had a discussion about maybe throwing out a couple of the details there and replacing yeah. stuff that... <laughs> Mosey can mad. Uh, yeah, stuff that we wanted to use to capture, to be a bit more ephemeral in the design. So essentially what we came up with was the idea that uh, it's the walls are there. You no, know, the wallpaper is there, but the walls have disappeared. Um, and as the wallpaper is peeling you can see through the cracks and so once we had that kind of concept it was easier to get all of those period details um, and also the, the kind of migrant experience details into that framing device um, yeah does that make sense yeah no totally yeah brilliant and also, um, sorry to jump in but but the big metaphor that I guess you discovered Grace which was about that safe space idea of there being like what does it protect? So when you first started, you just saw the front room. It was domesticity. This was somebody's house. Then that pulled back as Martina closed the curtains and it was suddenly like party central with a, I believe it's called an Austrian curtain. I discovered this, I'm making this piece of work uh, at the back of the stage, glittery and shiny. But then of course, when the moment of violence happens, that all falls away, quite literally falls away. And you're left with that gray imposing backdrop. Sorry to point out your genius for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the fiver later. But um, uh, yeah, because that idea as well about suddenly St. Anne's being present. So we painted this whole backdrop of a photo of St. Anne's so that, yeah, we start out just as a very closed off set. It becomes this space of kind of ultimate beauty and magic and some, a party that we all want to go to and ends up being completely permeated and taken over by St. Anne's in the backdrop of the morning light kind of that, that post-party blues in the... Yeah, yeah. Mm. Beautiful. I know, Matthew, you've got an ostrich curtain in your flat now. <laughs> um, How impressed would you be if I swung round and then... <laughs> Very. Really impressed. Um, Carl, can I take you back to 2018 when we first did Shabin? Because in the build-up to the production, um, the story suddenly became incredibly pertinent because the Windrush scandal broke in the press <clears throat> and of course after Shabin you went on to also perform in Nine Nights so that it feels like around that time 
um, there was a, a series of plays that had really caught the zeitgeist. Can you yeah, yeah, think back to that and talk us through that? Yeah, well, I re- in fact, I remember when I first met Matthew Fisher-Bean, being com- um, crazily um, excited about it because obviously I'm from Nottingham and um, born and bred. My parents are part of the Windrush generation. And so I knew the stories. I mean, I I didn't know specifically that our story of that particular riot, but I'd grown up with the stories of my parents talking about the kind of frictions that happened in, in and around and to the black community in Nottingham. So for me, it was like, it was a no brainer that I wanted to do it. Um, And, and then once we were rehearsing, and Martina will remember this, that we actually went to see the press night of Nine Night at the National Theatre. So the, you know, the first um, um, staging of it, that obviously I wasn't involved in, and we were both like, you know, blown away. And, um, and then so to get the opportunity down the line to do the transfer when it went to the West End was just like phenomenal. Because it did feel like, oh my goodness, these stories that are telling the history, early, well, the, the, the more recent history of the West Indian experience in this country were sort of coming to the fore. And they, and they really echoed my experiences as growing up, as growing up as a young man in this country to parents who had, had gone through that and were going through that. So, yeah, it was, um, I mean, A, <laughs> the zeitgeist completely correct but at the same time these were stories that we knew existed mm. and we had been longing for in a way so uh, beautiful timing beautiful timing can i can i point out carl that um the yeah even without the the horrific Windrush scandal happening and being brought to light then. It was still stories, as you are saying, that we were longing to hear and needed to be shared. And one review, uh, if we're allowed to talk about these things, said, um, don't know why they're doing this play. It just doesn't seem relevant. Do you remember that, guys? It was just like, no, I don't see the point. I mean, it's nice, but why do it now? I wanted to ask that like, the play references different islands and like Georgian Pearl are from Jamaica. Mm. I think Ernest is from Trinidad. Mm. And I remember our audiences being really vocal when different islands were mentioned. Martina, I wanted to talk to you about that um, and the complexities of the different islands. And, and if you could talk into that a bit. <laughs> hmm. Mm. Maybe you want to reference your own island. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um... It, it was something actually, because it. I think what's interesting is that the Caribbean is so separated in, uh, you know, um, after independence was granted in 1962 to Jamaica and 62 for Trinidad as well. There were moves for regional federation, um, which didn't, didn't happen unfortunately, and, it, and it's a big shame. It's a big um, political and historical shame. But what it means then is that the islands continue to be quite separated and, and, and communication and movement between them isn't quite what it could be. So a lot of times you're coming to London and you're encountering 
people from islands that you've never been to, but you're all seen as one. Mm -hmm. um, when I first got here, I used to get asked what part of Jamaica was Trinidad in. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, didn't go down too well. <laughs> what part of it? You know, right? Uh, like, like the Caribbean is kind of this mass called Jamaica, that everything is somewhere in there. Well, at least they didn't say to you, where, which part of Africa is Jamaica? Well, we'd moved on from that. That's right, we'd, we'd evolved. And, um, so it was funny to be playing uh, a part for, of someone from another island, especially because there's a character who's from Trinidad. I did try and slip Matthew a five. <laughs> <laughs> Trinidad. I don't know. <laughs> that didn't work. But um, it's, it's, also, it's also just an honor to portray a truth about that time and about people's experiences, you know. So, um, and the, the idea of these dwellings in which, in which all the different islands come together, in which people from Africa are meeting Caribbean people for the first time, etc. And, and, and all that inter-island rivalry is nothing when the brick comes crashing through the window. Mm. I, I remember um, hosting a, a post-show question and answer session at Stratford East. And I remember there being quite a lot of discussion about the different islands. And it got very complex as a discussion. And you guys, I mean, me as a white guy trying to host this, you know, <laughs> and you guys had to, you guys jumped in and, and absolutely sort of calmed it down a little bit because it was... The rivalry is, I, I think, is um, friendly and well meant, but it's it's there, it's there in the culture. Yeah, it's playful. I always think it's like um, it's like what Europe does. You know, Europe have all of these stereotypes about themselves and the other nations and the various elements that make it up. And I think it's just the same in the Caribbean. It's probably just the same in terms of the states in America in terms of. Yeah being a collective, but absolutely recognizing difference. Regions of this country, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And there's another complexity in there, isn't there, Mo? Which is, obviously, your heritage is yeah. African. Yeah. And I know from the conversations you and I had early on, um, that you were very conscious uh, yeah. that you were writing a play set amongst um, the Windrush generation. So, what... what what do you, uh, writers often have to write about other experiences other than their own. How did that, how did that feel writing about a different culture from your own? I think, um, like I said, like the, when I sort of was researching a play about St. Nance, which was back in the past, I, I found the idea of the Shabin, the idea of the Shabin, but I left it. I, I purposely was scared of it. I was scared of tackling that idea and scared of writing these characters. I think that in the writing process, that's probably the biggest hurdle I, I, I've faced was the fear. Uh, and I, I remember like I didn't attach it for, I just didn't do it. I just, I didn't do it because I, I, I just didn't want to get it wrong. Mm. But also I, I had to make sure my research was, on point, uh, that I, I knew what I was talking about, that I, I had spoken to this community, that I had extended the idea that I wanted to tell their story. And can mm. I just quickly do a follow-up for you, Matthew, on the same lines? Do you think, can any theatre maker tell any story? 
Mm, big question, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and anything, I mean, You've gone off grid here. Good question. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think right now in the current world that we live in, I think there is a conscientious thought that needs to be applied about the stories that we choose to tell and who we are. Uh, and if in in us telling that story, we are disempowering somebody, then we should think about that long and hard. But absolutely, I genuinely believe that creatives are, are, are the ultimate holders of imagination. And so we should ultimately be able to tell any story. But I think what happens is you get, uh, very often you get the people who the story is about being excluded from the process completely. And you're kind of on a hide into nowhere there, I guess. I see. I knew he'd answer it intelligently and, and yeah. with consideration. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Chosen no, specialist subject. <laughs> <laughs> Are those diplomas in the records? Yeah, um, everyone has a diploma. <laughs> Stuffed. Um, I've got a question for Grace. Really, I know you talked about this a bit already, but this idea of actually from afar, the idea of love and and community and celebration and your design being an invitation to join the party. How did your creative team tackle that, you know, short of an immersive piece of theatre, you know, like, how did you make steps towards us feeling like we were in the Shabin? And can you talk a little bit more about the transformation? I know that um, Matthew did, but... Yeah, um, I think what's funny about that is there was a version actually where we were gonna take out some of the front rows of, of the seats and put in sofas and bottles of rum and um, coffee tables, which obviously ended up not being um, health and safety viable. <laughs> um, instead what we did was, was try and get a big literal and kind of emotional thrust out into the audience. So, so we did take out those rows and we pushed the, the kind of the stage as far downstage as we possibly could, which sounds really literal, but it actually, it felt like uh, you know, we, we were as close to the party as possible. Mm -hmm. And that when, when you look out, it was amazing to see like Martina and Carl dancing while there's audience heads kind of almost next to them felt mm -hmm. really powerful. Um, so I guess that's the literal sense. Again, the sounds and the lights were so brilliant at, at thrusting out into the audience as well. So the, the speakers were, were so, you know, Richard Hamilton on the sounds, just blasting as much noise as possible at us. Uh, Kieran Cunningham shining lights into our face. So it really, uh, almost more like a, like a rock concert or a gig or something with a mm. disco ball and everything. It felt kind of um, more 3D, <laughs> yeah. short of, of spraying the audience with rum. It was, it was the closest we could get. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and that's what made this, the, the transformation so enjoyable again. In the third act when, when we see, oh sorry, at the end of the second act, when we saw the act of violence from the police, again, that's happening in a, in a concert-like space where we're so close, we can hear the, the china smashing around us. Um, it felt pretty impactful. And so, yeah, and, and again, we're right up against that kabuki cloth of the Austrian curtain as it falls away to reveal St. Anne's. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? yeah, we bought our own rum anyway. <laughs> That's great. So it's an Austrian curtain. I said ostrich curtain earlier. We let it go. We let it go, Adam. We let it go. <laughs> we let it out, Adam. 
<laughs> well, that's a shame because I've got an ostrich curtain just stage right. Um, <laughs> around and you just see loads of ostriches hung in the formation of the curtain. Grace touched on it then. The character of Linford in Act Two, when we discover that he's been killed in police custody and, and the, the characters on stage learn about it and, and George has a line which is, um, uh, I'm going to kill a man tonight. Mm. And I remember on some nights that got an interesting reaction from the audience. It got laughter. I remember it in Nottingham. I remember it at Stratford. And then I remember a couple of um, critics, the theatre the critics, commenting upon it. And, and, I, and, and the audience would discuss it and it would get quite heated. Some people thought, I think, that it was an inappropriate audience reaction. So I wondered, Matthew, what was that reaction about? Did you have a sense as director what that reaction was about? And also, is any um, audience reaction valid in theatre? Coming with the big questions today, aren't you? Right, um, so <laughs> let me think about that. Um, that line, I'm going to kill a man tonight, I think people recognise unbridled rage. I think they recognise that and there is ironic laughter at having felt that feeling in, in similar moments. And we've watched this man uh, talk for, for almost two hours about packing away his fists. He's not a fighter. And suddenly here he is in a crisis and he's ready to kill a man tonight. The nights I was there, that laughter was always from the community who had been there. It was laughter of recognition. I heard people saying things like, hey, remember the way you had to punch up that man? You know, and they, they were there on that night in 1958. And then I guess when we moved it to London, again, similarly, the Windrush generations were in that space and were seeing themselves on stage in an empowered position. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I think people can be inappropriate, uh, but I don't think an audience can be inappropriate because it doesn't have a central nervous system and a single brain. It's just a group of people responding, sometimes out of awkwardness, sometimes out of uh, recognition, sometimes because something is hilarious. So I think one, you can't analyze why they're laughing and responding in the way they are, uh, which probably means you shouldn't review them, right? Because I haven't directed them. So <laughs> they're not part of the show. <laughs> They are part of the people watching the show. And, and true. I don't want to police people's responses. I, I remember that there were some girls in the front row who were crying. And I think this critic had, had spoken to them and they felt like the laughter had upset their experience. Um, I think all of those experiences uh, and emotional responses are completely permissible and allowable in the space. Um, tiny side note, I remember... Uh, telling someone that we definitely shouldn't be doing a Bernard Manning play, a play about Bernard Manning, uh, because there were stage directions in it where he said the most offensively racist joke, and then the stage direction was, the audience remained silent. And I just went, yeah, you reckon? <laughs> That's dangerous. Yeah. Can I add something to that? The line, I'm going to kill a man tonight, is actually familiar language to, Carib to West Indian in the sense of different to Caribbean. So it, it's, a, it's a phrase you say. So it's like hearing a punchline. So of course they're going to laugh because it's a line that's said amongst Jamaicans, amongst Trinidadian people, amongst West Indians as a joke. So what would have happened was that it, to their ear, to that cultural ear, they would have heard a punchline at a very heightened situation, but they would have got why, why it's applied to that moment. Yeah. So 
so in a way, that's the question also about audiences, that there was a cultural experience happening that was not understood by some of the audience. And that's where we cannot police audiences. And if we want to talk about diversity, I truly, and I've always said this, I truly believe you're not diverse until your audience is diverse. And I think that what Shabin did was for me, the first time I have truly been in a diverse production because they, they, we were aware of all those different responses happening. We were aware of the tears and believe me, that was com our you know, community were also crying. So Mafaro, job well done in representing and in giving the love because mm. they felt it, they felt represented and there were tears of reliving what they'd been through. So, it, but it was dealt with so beautifully and sensitively that it held that experience. But there's also laughter from recognizing things that you say and black audiences tend to laugh at things that are uncomfortable, painful, that hurt because they lived it and they survived by laughing at, the, at, at these awful situations. And so the more that we have diverse audiences, the more accustomed we get to how different audiences respond to something and that it's all done with respect as part of the experience. And as by the end of it, we, were, we would have missed any of that reaction if it wasn't there, the tears and the laughter. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I wanted to ask Carl, actually, the, the, about the complex um, nature of the relationship between the sexes in the play, you know? Um, Pearl is the matriarch of the Shabin. Uh, Linford doesn't want um, his girlfriend, his white girlfriend, to protect him. Um, your character's haunted by um, a boxing past. And, you know, um, I think Ernest tries it on very heavily with ladies at the party, you know. He's <laughs> grabby, isn't he? Um, so just can you talk to me about what you think the play is exploring about masculinity? Pearl is most definitely the matriarch and the, the pivotal piece of this jigsaw and I think that I think that regardless of culture and race I think everyone will see those kind of um, masculine um, um, tropes that we all recognize very instantly and I don't think they're um, reserved just for the Caribbean or West Indian community I think they're maybe you could say they're a class I don't I mean that's too simple in itself as well that's too simple in itself but the reality is that we took on those we played our roles we played our parts people played their parts and not us as actors but people played their parts it's like the man he has to be the provider the breadwinner the strong upstanding the woman stays at home does this takes care of the kids blah 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 runs the family home and that and that and actually that's, I suppose, how I grew up, how a lot of us grew up. It was like my mother, not although she always worked, my mother ran the home, my father went out to work, and there were certain expectations of their roles and interplay. But 
the difference in the difference with George and Pearl is that George, to a great extent, accepts his his status, which is slight slightly below Pearl, and he he understands that and accepts that. But he also, when push comes to shove, believes that he still has to be the 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 force the force. Um, I think that the whole thing with with Linford, that I mean, that's like a an age old story, isn't it? It's like I am I am the protector. I'm the protector, and I think that George, bit with his boxing history, that that is also still such a fight for him is about just being the protect, protector. But Pearl constantly reminding him that actually, just let that go, let that go. You don't have to. You don't have to do that. It's about it's about rele releasing or relinquishing that kind of masculine energy um that actually in the end is somewhat the downfall of of Linford. no absolutely and, and you know during lockdown there have been all these articles we think it's about the past and our parents generation and you know uh my parents were first generation to this country i i think is it it's, it's wrapped up in culture, what, what not. But then you read articles about in lockdown, you know, housework and childcare, I'm lucky I'm a single woman, uh, is going to uh, mainly the, the women in a household. So, you know, more things change, more they stay the same for whatever reason. So uh, <laughs> just had to get that in, Adam. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting when you look at Linford and the kind of the hot-headedness of the youth, you know, and then the kind of reason of the seasoned older heads in right. the, in the in, which is kind of still kind of still is how things are today i mean i watched i mean i'm sure we all watched so many traumatic um videos during the the mm. upsetting uprisings um during the george floyd um protests and i remember watching one um exchange between two men three men in america where the older man was trying to explain to this man of a yeah. um, that we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing what we're doing we shouldn't be going about it this way and then the the, the middle middle man saying you know we have got to we've got to do more than you did we've got to do more than you did and then turning to this young boy who was 16 who was sort of standing there unsure of what he needs to do, unsure of his point, but with this rage kind of burning in it and trying to explain to him that there was a, there was a different way that, uh, which was heartbreaking, soul destroying, and also kind of so relevant of what we've seen throughout history, the most recent history. I, I would say that that's, that's the issues around masculinity, not being a masculine myself. <laughs> 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 but that um you know as much as we talk about a, a matriarchy it's not really a matriarchy because the, when george puts down his foot that's it mm. you, so pearl runs things and she invites the notion of a matriarchal space in a shabine format mm. but the point is that the violence of the system outside the window is felt inside. So like Carl's saying, you know, we're in lockdown, we were, we're, it's safely in our own homes, but the violence comes into our homes, mm. finds us there anyway. And the faro represents that with the brick coming through the window. It's 
as much as she tries to set up this safe matriarchal space that will keep her men away from violence in, in all its forms, you can't, it, you can't get away from it. And so George, who's, this is his world and this is how, how, where his skill lies and his strength lies. It's like, how do you not offer your community that power that you hold and that strength that you hold when there's violence? How could you just stay indoors and, and play music? You, he can't, he has to go out there as a man. He's needed. He's needed. Yeah. Can I, off the back of what Carl said and Martina, what you've just said, I'd like to send the last question to you, Martina, which is, um, you've been called upon to speak at several of the... the <laughs> you're like, what? He's been called! <laughs> you've been called upon, is where that was going, um, uh, to speak at several of the Black Lives Matter rallies recently. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a big question, but I'm going to ask it. So, 60 years on from uh, the setting of Shabin, do you think there has been any change in the prejudice which Mafaro was exploring in Shabin? I think we could all answer that. I think, um, I think there is a change. It's, it's not helpful for anyone to say that there is no change. There's even a change can be marked in the fact that we can call out things, that we have recourse to calling out behavior and occurrences. Um, uh but not enough has changed and there's a there's a misguided notion that we mark it by how far black people have come and mm. we haven't come anywhere we were so already <laughs> when we came we were already educated and and entrepreneurs and doing what we haven't come anywhere but who has moved on is white britain is what's moved on. And so white Britain needs to look at itself and go, have we changed? That's not for me to answer. We've not changed. We were already so. That's an amazing answer, isn't it? Does, is, is, does anybody else want to chip in on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mic drop moment right there. Anything else I don't subtract from the beauty of how encapsulated that was. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that's the power of Shabin in the theatre for the audience, for, as you said, Martina, the incredibly diverse yes. audience in every sense of the word, that kind of story um, just resonated in 2018 because of the Windrush scandal, having this conversation today with Black Lives Matter. It's, um, we need to keep telling these stories. And, and those poor Windrushers who ha are still awaiting the for their lives to be restored that were taken away from them. Mm. Um, thank you all so much. Martina, Carl, Mafaro, Matthew, Grace, on behalf of Nadia and myself, thank you for joining in the revival. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Nice to see you all, guys. Mm -hmm.